Good afternoon and welcome to Hudson Institute. Uh, my name is Aparna Pandey and I am the director of Hudson's initiative on the future of India and South Asia. Before we start the talk, uh, just want to mention that Ambassador Hakani was originally uh, supposed to moderate this talk, but he's unwell and um, will not be able to come in today. May 16, 2014 marked a new chapter in India's democracy. For the first time since 1984, a single political party won an absolute majority in India's lower house of parliament, Lok Sabha. Another milestone is that India's 15th Prime Minister, Mr. Narendra Modi, is the first to have been born in independent India. The verdict of 2014 parliamentary elections demonstrates that the Indian electorate voted for Mr. Modi's party, the BJP, because of its development-oriented manifesto. There is a lot of hype and hope from Mr. Modi and his administration. What remains to be seen is whether his government will be able to achieve all that they have promised to do in the next few months and years. Even though India is the world's largest democracy and the United States the world old, world's oldest, the two countries were never allies during the Cold War. However, in the last two decades, administrations in both countries have built closer relations and refer to each other as natural allies or the relationship as the defining partnership of the 21st century. India's ties with the US have deepened in the last few years, especially in the economic and defense security arenas. For decades, India's economic ties with US were limited, but in 2013, bilateral trade in goods and services stood at around $93 billion. Um, in 2012, um, American foreign direct investment in India was around $28 billion, and Indian FDI in the US around $5 billion. India and the US also shared a common vision for the future security architecture for the world and the Asia-Pacific region. Both prefer an inclusive, open security architecture and face common challenges tied to terrorism. With the recent elections in India, elections in Afghanistan and the American military drawdown in Afghanistan, the way India-US ties develop will have an impact not just on the region, but beyond. To discuss these issues and others confronting Washington and New Delhi, um, Hudson Institute welcomes Commodore Oday Bhaskar, Distinguished Fellow, Society for Policy Studies. Retiring from the Indian Navy in early 2007, after 37 years of service, Commodore Bhaskar is a New Delhi-based security analyst and a noted columnist and author. He is convener of the India International Center Study Group on Strategic and Security Issues. He was formerly associated with the Institute for Defense and Strategic Analysis in Delhi as the Deputy Director and then as uh, the Director of the Institute. Subsequently, he was appointed Member Secretary of the Government of India's Task Force on Global Strategic Developments. Commodore Bhaskar. Thank you, Aparna. You know, I was trying to keep a straight face when you have a CV that reads like an obituary. But however, you know, you now have a brief idea about who I am. At the outset, I want to thank Aparna and the Hudson for giving me this opportunity. And I'm presuming that our dear friend, Ambassador Hakani, is watching this live. So I hope he gets well soon. And thank you very much, Hakani, I mean, Hossein, for having me here. Uh, first of all, I want to thank all of you for being here. 
you know, on a working day on Tuesday at this point in the day to have all of you come here, I think is both a labor of love and commitment to the subject that we propose to discuss. So there are many friends here, old and new, and I do want to say hello. I managed to say hello to some of you, but I'm really glad that you're here. And we also have members from the Congress, the media, and this city has many disciplines. And I think most of them are represented here. So thank you very much for being here. Aparna said that perhaps we should keep this as interactive as possible. And the broad sort of brief for me was about 20, 25 minutes yeah. and then sort of move into a discussion. So what I will do is to first of all request her to give me a very firm alert, you know, when I come to my last three or four minutes. Because as you know this about, you know, people from my part of the world that we can sort of hold forth for a fairly long period. So just give me a very firm alert. Well, let me do this, which is that since she's already given you the broad background, we were debating saying that how should one pitch this? Now, all of you, I think, are differently. Uh, I can only describe you as black belts in your respective professions and your whatever be your persuasion. And I get a sense that most of you know India. And clearly, you know the United States even better. And clearly, you have a recall about the nature of the bilateral relationship. Now, there are many ways of triangulating the arrival of Prime Minister Modi. And she's, Aparna has given you a broad sense about what I would call as the distinctive nature of Mr. Modi's victory. Now, if we had more time, you know, we could have had a very useful discussion about what I would describe as the potential enormity from an Indian perspective of the election of Mr. Modi. You know, if you were to look at the numbers, you were to look at the campaign and the way in which I think he has now been elevated to the office of prime minister. But that would take us into Indian politics and socio-cultural issues, which are important in their own way, but may not be directly relevant to what we are discussing. If it comes up in the QA, I'd be very happy because I see myself as a student of Indian politics and Indian policies. And I think the way in which Mr. Modi has managed to reach South Block or Raisina Hill, as we call it, is an extraordinary political development. And again, you know, I'm just making this last point. I think there are many cues here, which the United States, you know, for its own reasons, would also, I'm sure, be studying. Because there is a very complex issue here about diversity. And what kind of an equitable arrangement a political dispensation is able to convey to the electorate and whether or not is realized is, of course, you know, a challenge for every politician from the White House here to every other democracy that you can think of. So I just want to flag that and say that there is a very distinctive texture, if I may use that word, to the election of Mr. Modi as India's Prime Minister. And he is, of course, leading the BJP. And, you know, I often make this point saying that the BJP translates into the Bharatiya Janata Party, which if you were to translate the Hindustani, the Hindi words, it is actually the Indian People's Party. But it's always but always prefixed with Hindu nationalist, which I think is a bit you know, unwarranted, but that's another sort of sidebar. I'll come back to it in the QA as to why I'm making this particular point. <coughs> that having been said, what does Mr. Modi's election do for the bilateral? I want to give you a broad contextual point, which is I'm an analyst, and I've been a student of what I would call as international relations for almost 25 years. And I cut my teeth towards the end of the Cold War, meaning there are a couple of faces and people that I can recognize here, 
we had the first meeting between India and the United States at what you might call as a track 1 level, track 1 point level, 1.5 level in December of 1990. The Cold War was not yet over. Nobody had any idea how the Cold War would end. The United States was in the middle of Operation Desert Shield, which would become Desert Storm a month later. And if I may say this in Washington sitting here at the Hudson, that it was a very uncertain period, both for the United States and in terms of how both the war in Kuwait was going to unfold, as also the correlation with Moscow, which then was the capital of the former Soviet Union. And this first meeting is important because for me as a student, as I said, I was literally the ship's cat at that point in time. And India and the United States were trying to, I think, really get a sense of each other in terms of how could they really outline the template, you know, the framework in which the bilateral would be pursued. What kind of policies, what kind of issues, what kind of priorities. And as I was going through my notes, you know, 1990 to now is almost 25 years. And I'd make the broad point that the United States and India are still, I think, trying to identify that degree of clarity and a certain sense of priority as far as the bilateral relationship is concerned. And that, as I said, I say this more as an analyst, as a student of the subject. And in December 1990, there are two names that come to mind. One is an undersecretary of defense. If I remember right, the name is Henry Rowan. And the other was the sink pack. Admiral Chuck Hardesty. They brought what I would call as Washington's focus in terms of what it was looking for in terms of the relationship with India. We had some Indian representatives, I won't go into the detail. But if I were to say what was the takeaway in December of 1990, I would make the following formulation that for the United States, the bilateral was being framed in terms of what were the geopolitical drivers for the United States, what was the big picture and how would India, how would the bilateral with India be of relevance and then further disaggregated into what you might broadly call as the geostrategic and the geoeconomic. Those to me were the three principal drivers in terms of how the United States was perceiving the relationship and you know this, I mean I do not want to in any way be dismissive of, we often say this you know. India and the United States are a case for the largest democracy and the oldest democracy. This is factual. It's not to be sneered at, but it is not enough to sustain any relationship. You have to move into specifics and talk about how do each side or how does each side look at its own national interest and how does that disaggregate into substantive value addition. Value addition can either be in terms of dollars and rupees or it can also be in terms of either the furtherance of an intangible interest or in being able to prevent or preempt what could be described as an adversarial impact on a given interest. And when I recall what happened in December of 1990, for the United States, it, at that time, it was the context. It was the bipolar world. It was the way in which the Soviet Union had been interpreted in this city. And immediately for us in South Asia, it was the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. So just keep this in mind because there's a sense of deja vu when we talk about 2014. And at that time, it was a China that was still emerging. It was not very clear as to what kind of a China would emerge. 
And I think it's more coincidence than design that the Hudson has organized this particular talk on the 3rd of June. Today is the 25th anniversary of Tiananmen. And when we met, Tiananmen was barely a year and a half old. But one could get a sense that the emergence of China, and here I'm going back to you know, a kind of brief conversation I had with Admiral Hardesty at that time. I'm a retired sailor, and we wanted to get some sense about what was happening on the maritime domain. But I'm just flagging this, saying that for the United States, some of the drivers, former Soviet Union, global geostrategic context, what is it that was deemed to be adversarial to US interests, Afghanistan, which was the specific case study as far as Southern Asia was concerned, and as I said, the emergence of China at that point, which was not as clear as it is now. If anything, in that particular point, a year or two later, I think the big debate was about the Japan that can say no, the Ishihara years, if you remember. And again, to extend the deja vu formulation, now I think the anxiety is, what if Japan says yes, you know, in terms of many of the issues that Japan is trying to confront at this point. So if you were to fast forward and say that, look at the same frame, the bilateral, India and the United States in 2014. In this period, 1990 to 2014, I think it's been an escalator. We have gone up, we have gone down, we have remained static, we have remained stagnant. But every possible kind of description that you can think of for a bilateral, I would say, has been experienced. Yes, there was a certain optimism, there was euphoria, and we had Mr. Vajpayee visiting the city, and we spoke about natural allies, partners, as uh, Aparna had pointed out. But it was also preceded by what I would call as the very turbulent phase from 1990 till 1998 when we carried out the nuclear tests. So my broad point is I don't want to go into detail except to say that every possible emotion that a policymaker can experience, and we have some people who were part of the system at that time, was felt on both sides. There was disappointment, there was frustration, there was dismay, there was anger, you name it, we had it. And I think we have to now review this bilateral relationship against this particular context. And again, as an analyst, I'd make the following submission, that whether it is the United States or India, for large countries, at the end of the day, you know, whatever be the nature of the political dispensation, whether it's in Washington or in New Delhi, they are guided by a certain degree of continuity. Yes, you can have a disruptive event, something that a policymaker has not catered for an exigency which no analyst, no think tank was able to, frankly, I think, simulate or forewarn. For instance, the end of the Cold War. December 1991 is something that nobody but nobody had anticipated that it would happen in that particular way. Or for that matter, 9-11, what happened in September 2001. I would describe these as disruptive events. And for us in India, we had Mumbai, November of 2008, which was, again, a terribly traumatic event. And as I said, it leaves a scar on the collective psyche. Barring these unforeseen exigencies, there is a certain continuity in how countries, I think, evolve their bilateral. And there are stakeholders within that. And very broadly, if I were to look at India and the United States, I would say that for purposes of our discussion today, I just make it, or I just sort of divide it into three broad Kids. One is that there is a larger politico-diplomatic dimension. It can play out regionally, it can play out globally, but there are issues that both countries are tossing around in a broad politico-diplomatic sense. And then you have, and that's largely intangible, you know, nuclear disarmament. Pandit Nehru 
Rajiv Gandhi, what they said or what President Obama said most recently in Prague. You know, these are big ticket issues, one doesn't deny it, but they fall, as I would say, in the broader realm of the political diplomatic and they are long lead, long, you know, gestation. It is the economic and security pillars or these two baskets which are, which are more tangible and which are more relevant to the electoral cycle. You know, whether it is the White House or whether it is South Block, that the elected leader has to be seen to be delivering in a brief period within the time that they are elected on these tangible issues. So I'd like to make this proposition that if you review India-US bilateral relations, you know, as far back as you can go, 1947 when we became independent and the United States established its bilateral in, in autonomous way, the one word that comes to mind, and this as most of you here are aware, is the title of Ambassador Dennis Cook's book where he talks about the India-US relationship as estranged democracies. Now, in 1998, when India carried out that nuclear test, it really seemed that that estrangement had gone so far south that it would not be retrieved in a very long time. But to the credit of the political leadership on both sides, you saw that by the time we came to early 2000, not only was the rapprochement affected, but we had President Clinton in Delhi. And from then onwards, I would say that there has been a steady improvement. And while the engagement that had been envisioned by both sides has not really materialized in the same manner, the track is now reasonably clear, meaning that that particular issue had been set aside. And it was not resolved in terms of its global relevance, but the track for India-US bilateral had by and large been identified. If you were to now look briefly at the period 2000 to 2014 where we are now, you see the beginning of what I would call as India and the United States identifying big ticket issues in the strategic domain, in the security domain, and as far as economic and trade issues are concerned. But concurrently, there were a series of developments I won't go into detail except to say that the engagement did not reach the kind of fruition that both sides had expected, but, and this is the big but, notwithstanding 9-11-2001 and the priority for the United States, and notwithstanding what India was going through in that period from 2004 to 2006-07, when we had the transition from the first NDA government led by Mr. Vajpayee, that's a name most of you would remember, to Dr. Manmohan Singh's first term, UPA-1. We had the beginning of what I would call as the most substantive achievement in India-US relations, which is the Civilian Nuclear Accord, mooted in July of 2005 by Dr. Manmohan Singh as Prime Minister and President Bush here in his second term. But it had a genesis, meaning that as far as the US was concerned, you will find elements of what actually comes into the public domain in July 2005 was already being discussed as far back as Clinton too, to the best of my knowledge. And definitely on the Indian side, post the Clinton visit from 2000 onwards, Prime Minister Vajpayee had already outlined what he felt was the way in which India should progress the relationship. So this, you know, let me pause here and say again, since I'm an analyst, I am not a policy, I mean, I'm not in the government. To me, what is relevant is that every country has to identify the geopolitical moment. And you give traction to a bilateral relationship or you actually chart new directions. And perhaps the best example that would resonate in this city is the Nixon-Kissinger opening to China. 
I mean, whatever you may say about the politics, it was a certain geopolitical decision that the United States had to accommodate China into the global framework. And that, as I said to me, is the kind of uh, example that in 2005, when President Bush, I think, signed on to the civilian nuclear accord, it was a sense in the United States that the US had to engage with India because it was in the larger US interest. I mean, that's my bottom line. The fact that between 2005 to 2008, we dropped the ball many times, it seemed as if we would not be able to reach satisfactory conclusion is a completely different, I would say, narrative about India and the US. But again, to their credit and to the officials who stayed the course, both India and the US were able to go to their political leadership and say, we've done it. We have signed on the dotted line. And there was some very innovative detail that went into it. And that's what is relevant, I think, when we talk about the future. You know, when I think of how 2008 happened, which is the final document of the civilian nuclear agreement, the 123, we had the Hyde Act. Some of you may remember the Hyde Act. But when I talked to the officials later and tried to understand a little more of the fine print, it was very innovative bureaucratic work between the officials on both sides who said that, listen, there is a bigger objective. The Indians knew it. The Americans knew it. There was a lot, as I said, of tension. There was a lot of disappointment, but it happened. 2008 happened. And what the United States did was to enable India to be brought into the larger, more than the nuclear grid, I would say it was the larger politico-diplomatic strategic grid. India was no longer ostracized. India was no longer the outlier. And it enabled what I would call as the last of the major steps to be taken for the India-US relationship to be brought into a normative framework. That's where we were after 2008. I won't belabor the point that there was an enormous amount of disappointment on both sides from 2008 to the end of 2013. But it did not prevent the US and India from identifying core interests, going through the exercise of bringing them back onto the radar on both sides. And since my own focus of interest is in the security and strategic domain, I will draw your attention to June 2005. That preceded July 2005. And that is a landmark agreement between then Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and our Defense Minister at that time, Pranab Mukherjee, who is currently the President of India. That provided what I would call as a vision for both sides about how they wanted to proceed as far as the security and strategic domain were concerned. And this, by the way, has come back into focus again as recently as September last year, 2013, when Dr. Manmohan Singh, our Prime Minister, was here. He met President Obama. And if you see that particular reiteration, if you will, it gives you what I would call as the official benchmark, the framework in which the bilateral has already acquired a certain degree of clarity of contour. So my broad point is that with Prime Minister Modi, my sense is that if you were to look at the political diplomatic, the economic and trade, and the security strategic tracks, A, there would be a fair amount of continuity. There is no disruption that I foresee. But what Mr. Modi will bring as Prime Minister to my mind is a very, very distinctive personal stamp. Meaning that if you review the last 10 years, it seemed as if, the Indian Prime Minister was not as much of an actor, nor was he visible. I think the visible part is more important. I'm sure that he was a very, very uh, effective actor within the higher defense and higher political management of India, but that's another story. My point as an analyst here today is to say that what do you expect from Mr. Modi? 
I would say clarity and a certain degree of decisiveness. He is someone who has come out as chief minister of a state that has delivered on many tangibles. And when he comes to this particular bilateral, my sense is that while there would be the continuity in terms of previous policies, his point of reference will in all probability be Mr. Vajpayee. The Vajpayee policies that were outlined in the early period 2000 onwards, to my mind, would find continuity. And very quickly, another five minutes? Or what I would say is that my own sort of assessment is that if we stick with this you know, disaggregation of politico-diplomatic, economic trade and security and strategic, that on the politico-diplomatic side, Mr. Modi has already established himself as somebody who hits the ground running. What I mean by that is, here is a man who doesn't know Delhi. I don't know if this analogy is appropriate, but from my recall, it's a bit like Mr. Clinton coming to Washington, you know, a governor of Arkansas coming here and trying to get a feel of the city. Mr. Modi comes from Gujarat. He does not have any hands-on experience of Delhi, much less of the Foreign Office. What does he do? Even before he's sworn in, 26th of May is the swearing-in, a few days when the date is being finalized, he announces that he's going to invite all the leaders of the SAR countries, the South Asian neighbors, and Mauritius, you know, the island in the Indian Ocean. And with that one invite, he has actually energized SARC. Sark, you know, the one word that we have constantly used, and I'm saying this in lighter vein, Sark is always supposed to have been moribund. You know, nothing happens in Sark. It was mooted years ago, but there's just no action for a variety of other reasons, Indo-Pak, etc. But moribund is also a word that was used for India-US, you know, over the last one year plus, saying that both sides had lost political traction, that the domestic issues were so shall we say, uh, the, the preoccupation from both Mr. Obama and Dr. Manmohan Singh was more on domestic and safe. therefore they took their eye off the ball as far as the bilateral was concerned. But what Mr. Modi did, and this is my point, that he was able to energize Sark even before he became the Prime Minister of India. And that is the kind of style or that's the kind of personal, I would say, element that I foresee that he would bring into all his bilaterals. He is the kind of Prime Minister who is already on Twitter, I mean, soon after the swearing in, just anecdotally, if I may share this with you, the first message of the Indian Prime Minister was to the entire population, you know, and he was literally doing this when the swearing in was over, while his other colleagues were being sworn in. And he sent out messages to Mr. Abe in Japan and various other people that he has this kind of a contact. So that's one broad observation, if I may, that he will bring this distinctive political style, but it will not be impulsive. So a sense that he is either going to be doing something very radical as far as the India-US bilateral is concerned, to me is misplaced. He would be advised by his core professionals and he's going to have, I think, a very interesting team that he's going to put together. We see some elements of that in place. But that's where I want to move to the other two tangibles, which is the economic and trade dimension and finally the security and strategic dimension. Aparna gave you some figures saying that the last you know, recorded figure for India-US bilateral is about 93 billion. Even if you were to say the ballpark figure is 100 billion, mm. it's a remarkable growth from where India and the United States were as recently as the mid-90s. And my sort of, again, broad point, I'm not an economist, but whenever I look at the numbers and the graphs, there is enormous catch-up 
you know what economists love in their graphs to show you as catch up area. So the possibility that India and the United States in terms of bilateral for us at least from the Indian point of view touching 500 billion dollars over a period of between 5 to 10 years is not as impossible or outrageous you know implausible as it may seem just now. And for that much would depend on India's ability to frankly go back to growth rates that we had in the early part of the century. Meaning if you look at the last report we have slipped to something like 4.4-4.5% which you know at a global level many countries would give their right hand to have you know growth rates of above 4%. But in Asia and for India in particular it is not a satisfactory figure and people are hoping that we will go back to the 8% and the 9%. Now for that to happen I would submit again for your consideration that Mr. Modi has a very clear idea as a politician. He may not be an economist, he may not be you know a professional in various other disciplines that nations need, but he has that political acumen and he was able to deliver in Gujarat. You know if you look at Gujarat from the time he took over as chief minister to where it is now, he had I think instinctively focused on the big picture items that a state needed, infrastructure and for that I mean I do not know how many of you have had a chance to visit Gujarat, but I have made a few visits over the last decade can see the visible improvement. And along with that as I said he has given a sense of hope for the people of Gujarat who came out of a very awkward I would say and difficult maybe awkward is not the best word, but an exceedingly traumatic experience which is post 2002 what happened in Godra. Notwithstanding that he was able to as I said get the state to move in a certain direction. And I expect that he is going to prioritize infrastructure amongst other aspects in his first couple of years and give the traction to the Indian economy. Because as most of you are aware that as far as national economies are concerned, the government or government policies can enable up to a point. After that you really have to release those animal spirits or you know kick start the entrepreneurial kind of capabilities that states and societies have and I think he was able to do that in Gujarat. Again an anecdotal example for you to make the connection. We have two states in India, West Bengal which is you know if you can imagine the map of India it is closer to Bangladesh and you have Gujarat on the west coast. We have a very controversial kind of decision about a major automobile company, most of you know the Tatas and they were hoping to do something big in the state of West Bengal. But the politics of the state did not allow it. At the end of the day what does Mr. Tata do? He moves the entire plant lock stock and barrel and is received in Gujarat. Now of course you can have a different kind of critique about this about how Gujarat had done whatever it did. But my point is that Mr. Modi will bring this kind of purpose. And if I could borrow a phrase from one of my friends who was just speaking as we were coming up, Mr. Modi like Mr. Reagan when he came to Washington will give a sense to the electorate that he is firmly in charge, that he has got the reins in his hand. The analogy that my friend Mr. West had just mentioned to me was about President Reagan and his handling of the air traffic controllers at that time and what that did to his presidency. So I make this formulation or I make this particular projection that Mr. Modi will bring this distinctive stamp, he is going to prioritize economic and trade issues and there is a, it's a very wide spectrum, I will not get into it except to say that if India is to reach 8 and 9 percent of growth from the Indian point of view, 
India needs to engage with the United States. It needs to engage with US corporates, with the US government, with US academia, US think tanks, R&D, whatever. And I'm just making a broad observation across the board. India desperately needs to kickstart its manufacturing, particularly the medium and small scale enterprises. We have to tweak our own legislation. There's lots to be done. But I'm just saying that drawing your attention to that white area in the graph, the catch up area, from $100 billion to go up to $500 billion in a reasonably short time frame. And to extrapolate from Gujarat, since I had the benefit of speaking to the congressman, that one of the things that perhaps needs to be mooted by professionals is, can we have more viable state-to-state -state relations? Meaning that India is a large country, 1.2 billion. You know the geography of India. The United States is a large country. And is it possible to manage these kind of bilaterals within the framework of state to state or even city to city? I'm not sure, but I'm just tossing this around, saying that we need people like you to give this a thought. And I'm just outlining this, saying that there is a huge opportunity. And my sense is that Mr. Modi is cognizant of this. And we will see some very, very tangible action. One last point on trade and economy. I do know that from my own conversations with people who have been advising him and in the party, he is very, very aware of the global business and investment environment as the Chief Minister of the State. And I gather that it has been brought to his attention that the last survey of doing business, you know, global business, mm. had placed India at position number 136, sorry, 176, out of a list of 189. So that will give you an idea about how difficult it has become for an outside investor or business person. And this is something that has to be fixed in India at a political level. It's about red tape, it's about mm -hmm. corruption, it's about delays, you know, the whole works. And again, if anybody can perhaps address it in an effective manner, I expect Mr. Modi, because it also has to do with the fact that you have 282 seats in a house of 543 in the Lok Sabha. So how you do your legislation, you know, how you're able to push various policies is something that I expect he's going to prioritize. Let me just spend two, three minutes. Do I have that on my outer time? Two, three minutes, if I may, <laughs> on the security and strategic domain. Here again, you know, I did have a lot of figures, but I won't get into that because I don't think I can do it in two, three minutes. Let me go back to the big picture because this is something that I have been trying to, frankly, you know, study and understand for my own work as a researcher that, as I said, I had the benefit of looking at the world in 1990 as a researcher when the Cold War had not ended. And 24, 25 years later, I'm still you know, trying to sort of grapple and get a sense about where are we going from now. <coughs> 10 years is a reasonable time for someone to put their head on the block. So I thought that if I were to look at the big picture, again, some of you would know these figures, I see the emergence of what I would call as a macro triangle. What I mean by that is, today, if you look at the global economic scenario, I'm looking at 2012 figures, the United States has at constant value, not PPP, constant dollars, a gross domestic product of $16.2 trillion. These are figures of 2012. The number two position is held by China, which has $8.2 trillion. And India, which I'm bringing into the grid, is a distant fourth. It is at $1.85 trillion. Japan, Germany are single state economies that have far more robust indicators. 
Now, if you were to do this as a PPP exercise, you know, you'll find a completely different set of figures, but I don't want to get into the PPP debate just now. I have my own reservations. But the projection by almost every major, shall we say, think tank and financial investment firms and so on is that if you look at the next 20 years, roughly 2032, 2033, in this period, you will see the emergence of what I often describe as a tripolar single state macroeconomic order. What I mean by that is that 2027 is now received wisdom about when China overtakes the United States, all things being equal. And we are saying this on Tiananmen anniversary, so I just want to sort of say that there are many imponderables and I wish China well, but I am just saying that all things being equal. 2027, China becomes the world's number one economy. The United States will be a close second. It is not as if it will be a big margin. India will be the distant third. That is the projection by the time you come to 2027, 2030. And yes, the European Union would still be very relevant as an entity. But we do not quite know what will be the credibility of both the EU's cohesion for foreign policy, security policy, the euro, you know, all of that. But they are there on the grid. Japan, a very important actor. But both demography and I would say the current economic indicators may not give it that kind of relevance. So to me, the engagement or the challenge, the big picture for Washington, if I may, and the big picture for Delhi is how do you manage the bilateral in this kind of a macro context. And again, nobody is suggesting that India and the United States need to arrive at some kind of a binary relationship that would be either adversarial or against China, far from it. I, my own sort of assessment is that the compulsions of globalization and technology are going to make it very difficult for any binary choices. So the point is, how do you deal with the triangular relationship both at the bilateral and both at the collective as far as the national interest is concerned. You know, what I had outlined at the beginning saying that there is a geopolitical, there is a geoeconomic, there is a geostrategic, of late we have geoenergy and various other geos. But I think for the policy maker and all of you differently I think contribute to this particular deliberation in this city. I am suggesting that India and the United States need to have some clarity about the big picture and not for a moment am I suggesting that we will get it right the first time or that there would be total agreement on all issues far from it. We have our own experience of disappointments and as I said frustration dealing with each other. But if the policy maker or the academic or the analyst or whoever is able to look at this I think it will give us a sense that the path that we have chosen or identified is the most appropriate. Because very often if you do not get the path right, you know, you, as I said, this is a whole discussion and argument about path dependency and policy makers and how you can make the wrong choice in terms of the path and where it takes you to. Now specific to defense and security, 2014 has been spoken about so many times. United States is going to withdraw Afghanistan, Pakistan, terrorism and I think Afghanistan is back in the news in this city because of the deal that has been struck between the Taliban and the sergeant who has been brought home. Beyond that, this is what I meant by the sense of deja vu. I opened my remarks saying that in 1990 the Soviet Union was withdrawing from Afghanistan and there was a certain assessment made by policy makers in this city, by policy makers in New Delhi. And I just make a short point that we paid a very heavy price from 1990 onwards. 
Now, if you look at what are the big ticket issues for India and the United States, most of you are familiar with the QDR, the United States, you know, puts out in the public domain, the Quadrennial Defense Review. If you go through the first section, the main bullets, what is it that causes concern for a US policymaker, the National Security Advisor, his team, the White House? There are three, four recurring reference, references going back to post-2001. Weapons of mass destruction, referred to in the document as WMD, and the non-state entity, and the possibility that the non-state entity would access WMD. If you look at India's concerns, we do not have a document that clearly spells out as clearly as the QDR, but you will find both these references, terrorism and a sense that there are many uncertainties, particularly after 2014. So for us, it's a question of capacity. And Aparna, I'll really stop yeah. in two minutes, I promise, you know, two minutes, which is that it's a question of capacity. And that's where the United States and the bilateral comes into focus. Here are the figures. My own calculation is that if you look at the period 2015 to 2035, 20 years, two decades, India is likely to allocate $1.5 trillion or a little below that for defense alone. We, by the way, are very you know, modest in terms of our defense allocation. If you look at Asia, our current allocation is about $40 billion annually. China and Japan are way, way ahead of us. Despite that, if our growth rates are sustained, our requirements you know, to sustain a one million army, et cetera, et cetera, I expect that this would be the allocation. And within that, my ballpark figure is that about 400 to 500 billion would have to be identified for investment in big ticket items, you know, capabilities. What kind of capability will India acquire? Nuclear propulsion is my favorite you know, advocacy because I'm a retired sailor. Like this, we have various other aspects of India's military capability. At the lower end of the spectrum, we are talking about technology, terrorism. What can we do better? What is the Afghan experience all about in purely military terms? It's a very intensive operation. I mean, I was just reading the sergeant's case and the fact that over three years, at one point, I hope the newspapers got this right, the Washington Post, it said that the US deployed a whole division for a two-week period to find the sergeant. I mean, that gives you an idea about what kind of resources are required to deal with this challenge. So my last point is that if you look at these figures, you know, I've just said 400 to 500 billion dollars based on current, what we in India call as capital expenditures. And these are traditional stuff, aircraft, ships, submarines, you know, well known. We are now moving into a domain where cyber and space are going to become very critical in terms of comprehensive national security capability. And that is something that India and the United States need to be talking about in terms of the big picture. Again, there is a frame of reference. India and the US have what is called as a defense trade and technology initiative. Ash Carter you know, did some very valuable work. So like this, I'm just saying that there are lots of things that have been done. What we need is that sense of purpose <coughs> that India and the US are both equally committed stakeholders, that they will both have something in terms of what they bring to the table and what they take from the table. So the last line is every time I'm asked, you know, I've been trying to share my thoughts on India-US relations for many years. And the standard sort of formulation is that all of us are now victims of television and cyberspace saying, what is it? Is it optimism? Is it pessimism? Where do you stand? And I sort of mull a bit and chew my beard and say, you know, actually, I think my preference is stoicism. 
we have to be stoic and stay the course. Thank you. My apologies for taking more time than I have planned. Thank you, Comrade Bhaskar. Um, you've spoken a lot on the big picture. Um, but as you know, we are in a city which really con worries about the small picture, which is the next few weeks, the next few months um, are the focus. So I'm going to let others ask big picture questions. My question is, where do you see India's policy towards Afghanistan? Because that's something which is important, Afghanistan, and by default, the elephant in the room, Pakistan. Shall I go with that or take some more? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, briefly again, I think the Indian response to Afghanistan, I know before we came in, a couple of our colleagues and friends were talking about the Modi government and saying that the fact that Ajit Doval has been appointed as the national security advisor, yeah. what does it mean? For those of you who are not aware, Mr. Ajit Doval is our former chief of the intelligence bureau, you know, the domestic part of our intelligence apparatus, and a man you know, who's got a very, very impressive profile. And he was heading a think tank till recently, and Mr. Modi has appointed him as the national security advisor. He, incidentally, is not the first IB chief. We had mm -hmm. Mr. Narayanan, yes. his predecessor, who was also an IB chief. But in relation to Afghanistan and Pakistan, I think the Indian response would really be predicated on what happens in Kabul and again what happens in Pakistan. And I think here my short response is that currently Kabul is going through a very complex transition. Mm -hmm. Now what happens when the runoffs are held June 14th, you already see threats and you know yeah. kind of challenges to the Kabul government and its efficacy. But what happens? the post-Karzai, shall we say, political arrangement, and the ability of the Afghan security forces, both in terms of the national army and the local police, and their intelligence you know, capabilities, the degree to which the United States is going to commit resources. Again, that is dependent on the bilateral security arrangement, whether it will be signed or not. My sense is the new government, you know, whoever comes, is likely to sign it. We were speaking to some people who visited from Kabul about three weeks ago. And you know, just to get a sense of the election, that seems to be the received wisdom. If that is done, I think India and the United States need to have very, I would say, exhaustive consultation and chats about Afghanistan. Most of you are aware that we had this attack in Herat even before the swearing in of Mr. Modi. That was seen as a challenge. And as of yesterday, one of our aid workers has been abducted, you know, somebody who was working in the education sector. So these are going to, I think, continue. India is not pulling out of Afghanistan, meaning that whatever India is doing on the development and the power sector, my sense is that we are going to stay the course. But it offers us an opportunity to do things, I would say, for a lesser cost, not so much in money, but as in lives. Because we are very conscious of the fact that this is going to be a very tough, and we've gone through this twice before. Some of you mm -hmm. may recall that our embassy was attacked, and we have some very strong views about how that attack took place. The Afghan government, the Afghan intelligence has very strong views. And if there was one issue that came up in the swearing-in of Mr. Modi, when the SARC leaders came, mm. it was this issue of terrorism and what's happening in Afghanistan. Mr. Karzai mm. made a statement to an Indian television channel. And that actually went you know, viral in a limited way you know, within the SARC context. So short answer, very important for us, dependent on Kabul. And the related part is dependent on Pakistan. Meaning, what Mr. Nawaz Sharif is doing now, in terms of trying to deal with his own domestic situation, is also very challenging. And for me, as a security analyst, I keep saying that Pakistan has to be refereed at three levels. There is Islamabad, 
the civilian leadership and Mr. Nawaz Sharif to his credit is doing some very uh, brave things. But he also has to be I think very conscious about how he deals with Rawalpindi which is the headquarters as most of you know of the Pakistani army. And Rawalpindi in turn has to make up its mind about what kind of status it will accord to Muridke. Those of you who know Pakistan, Muridke is the headquarters of the Lashkar-e-Taiba, one of the better known groups that engage or that actually believe that they need to take recourse to the path of violence and terror. So Pakistan is also a happening place. And I think India's response, by the way on Mr. Modi, a lot of people, you know, since we have this tag of Hindu nationalist, let me just place this again as accurately as I can. He said many things in the campaign, you know, and every politician who is seeking an election will say many things in a campaign depending on the audience and, you know, what would resonate the most. I said to myself that, you know, he comes across in a more thoughtful way if you read his print interviews in the run-up to the prime ministership. And I went through a lot of them, you know, both in Gujarati and in Hindi and in English. And the one refrain that I had was that in relation to Pakistan, he is not closing any doors. You know, there is no kind of preconceived policy. So the suggestion that Mr. Modi is going to be very firm and that you will have, he will do ABC, which is going to disrupt the cart is not factually true. And the last interview for those of you who have a more detailed interest, I draw your attention to the Times of India where he has a very detailed interview. It's in English. It's easy to get on the net. And if you see the section on Pakistan, he says that I would like to maintain a window and much depends on how they frame their policies on terror. And by the way, that goes back to Vajpayee. So that's what I mean, that there is a con essential continuity. If you read the January 2004 document signed between Mr. Vajpayee and General Musharraf, the central premise is the same. So my, you know, reading on Afghanistan, Pakistan is that it will be a kind of wait and watch about how these two countries, you know, internally sort of evolve or stabilize. But otherwise with Pakistan, I think the signals are trade, trade and more trade. Gujarat, Rajasthan can be opened up fairly soon. These are the two proximate states. Modi sahab knows Gujarat very well. <coughs> and if the rail line is opened up, the, you know, real opposition or resistance as I see it is likely to come from the Murid K. Rawalpindi yeah. sort of uh, actors, you know, how they perceive the relationship. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to open it up for questions. Please wait for the mic to come to you and do identify yourself. Some rough paper. You, no one has mentioned this, but um, I've been reading up on this prime minister. He's been barred. Can you please identify yourself. Oh, Mary Carrick. Um, he's been um, barred from entering the United States because of an incident in 2002. And I'm wondering what you think, how that's going to affect um, U.S.-India relations. And also, I'd like a better definition of what the term nationalist means in India. Because in the recent EU elections, when there were parties that were called nationalists, the media always liked to call them Nazis and extremists. Have I got this right that you're referring to 2002 and the visa issue? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you raised it because I did not touch upon it in my remarks. The 2002 visa issue is something that the commentary seemed to suggest that it would be a big obstacle as far as the bilateral was concerned. But fairly quickly after the victory, Mr. Modi made it very clear that he would not let a very important bilateral like that with the United States 
be dependent on what happens to a single individual. He said this in English, he said this in Hindi. So our own reading in India is that the visa issue has been put behind as far as the public domain is concerned. Is Mr. Modi going to come to Washington in a hurry? No. That to me is very unlikely. He has to outline what would be his first few capitals. I think the contact between India and the US at a personal level will proceed cautiously. We have Ms. Nisha, the Assistant Secretary who is going to be in Delhi I think next week. You know, she is coming from Central Asia and China and we will get some sense. I am sure the US will also arrive at some determination about the ambassador to succeed uh, Ambassador Nancy Powell. And at some point I think, you know, my sense is that the UNGA provides the best opportunity in September when all the global leaders come that it is always useful politically and diplomatically and people like Don Camp can correct me for having these meetings on the side, you know, which are fairly convenient and can be scheduled at short notice, etc. To my mind that would be the first contact and I think if we can bring the foreign ministers, the strategic dialogue back into track. Ms. Sushma Swaraj is our foreign minister. Mr. Kerry has not yet, I think, had a chance to meet with the new team or for that matter with the Indian political leadership. I think if that happens, I would see that it would move up. So I, my sense is that for Mr. Modi, his immediate priorities in the bilaterals in terms of visits would be the SARC, where I think he is looking at some possibilities. There is one school which believes he must do Bangladesh first. And Japan is very visible on the radar. I think he is going to definitely have you know a fairly quick contact with Japan. That's my sense now. But with the US it will happen. And that's the first part. Is that satisfactory? And on the nationalist, if I may, should I address that? You know, when you said what is the meaning of the word nationalist? In Indian yeah, you know, I was just saying that for me, when I look at the commentary, in India, what happens is that this translation from Hindi to English, you know, can be a little problematic. We have used the word communal, you know, far more, I would say, robustly in the Indian debate in the run-up to the election. And much of it had to do with the image of the BJP and what it would do to the minorities, specific reference to the Muslims. So the word communal comes up more often than the word nationalist. My own reading is that the word nationalist is used more often than not in the Western media commentary. You know, there are two boilerplates if you are a journalist, I don't know who are the journalists here. Any story on India, even if it is 400 words, and I am a columnist so I know what 400 words means. The first paragraph would say, India, Pakistan, nuclear armed, went to war three times. You know, it is roughly about 70 words. But every and any story will have that mandatory reference, we call it the boilerplate reference. The second paragraph, it talks about Indian politics and the BJP in particular, would be preceded by Hindu nationalist which I am just saying as an analyst is not an accurate representation. You know, by that token, every European party should be preceded by Christian nationalist, you know, or whatever be the religion. So I am just saying it does not accurately convey the word nationalist, which has a different connotation as you said when you look at the European debates, you know, the extreme right wing, the fascist sort of orientation and so on. That to my mind has not entered the Indian discourse. But I'd be happy to be corrected by anybody else who has a different view on that. Good day. My name is Arnold Seitlin, <clears throat> and I opened up the first Associated Press Bureau in Pakistan, and I didn't invent boilerplate. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did try to get uh, the name Z.A. Bhutto into every story I wrote. Uh, what does India want 
from a relationship with the United States? And two, uh, what are the opportunities that seem to be uh, starting in a relationship with Japan? Uh, short answer, I should have known that you were the expert sitting here. I'll talk to you about boilerplates later. But here is an aside for researchers who are sitting here, since we have some young interns. Do look at you know, media commentary on India-Pakistan, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But I always get a sense that India-Pakistan nuclear armed went to war three times, comes up ever so often. But we'll take it up separately. I think what India wants from the US, ready to my mind, are trade technology investments. And there is an awareness in India that we need to have what I would call as a far more stable and robust political relationship. You know, I emphasize this for three reasons. One is that if you look at what's happening now, and I'm using the Obama speech at West Point as the takeoff, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty about where is the world going, and particularly where is the US going, you know, if I may say so as uh, candidly. Whether it's in relation to Ukraine and Russia and what's happening there or South China Sea and this recent sort of exchange of some very strong words between Secretary Hegel and his Chinese general, who is not quite his counterpart but who came to the conference. I think there's a lot of, I would say, you know, anxiety about what's happening at the politico-diplomatic level. And India is aware that we need to have what I would call as a strong and stable and sustainable relationship with Washington. So it's on all three tracks. It's not just about a transactional relationship that is investment and technology for whether it is manufacturing or high tech or military, but also this what I would call as the diplomatic and political relationship in terms of what are the challenges for India. And I'm just talking about the Indian sort of perspective. And I think Mr. Modi will bring that to the table. The departure, if I may, you know, sort of, again, I'm putting my head in the block here. Since you asked the question, I'm thinking aloud. I think Mr. Modi will bring India's own core interest, the trade, e economic, security, strategic. They would be more visible in driving foreign policy. It was not so evident in the last 20, 30 years. It's not that Indians didn't know. It's not that diplomats didn't know or that the professionals did not know. But say, I'll give you the example of the Nehruvian period. You know, India was visible at the global level. You know, we had disarmament, we had the end of colonial rule, we had apartheid, various things. But it was a mismatch, you know, from what I would call as the domestic imperatives. Again, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Nehru, so don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying it was a certain time and place in history. Then we spent a lot of time with Pakistan on the Kashmir issue, you know, which again had a different kind of history and so on. Now, and this goes back to the Vajpayee kind of, again, broad orientation. India is seeking technology. India is seeking investment. India is seeking a robust uh, broad spectrum relationship that would enhance India's capacity, tangible capacity in terms of comprehensive national power. Now, clearly the US has not been able to arrive at its own determination as to how much it wants to engage with India. It made a very big, I would say, decision in terms of the civilian nuclear agreement. But we haven't been able to take that forward. We have our own, I would say, issues about the nuclear liability, etc. But I get a sense that these would be addressed. And let me just add this for those of you who are looking at trade economic issues. Two observations that Mr. Modi made in the run-up to the campaign. He referred to the Vodafone case. For those of you who know the Vodafone case, it's a retro tax decision that was taken, which had serious implications, repercussions for India's, you know, shall we say, image. And he said it's a breach of faith. He didn't take any decision on it, 
but when asked about it, you know, what will you do? And he was yet to be sworn in and become prime minister. He used the phrase breach of faith, meaning that he has the sense from Gujarat what it means to project and sustain a certain credibility in terms of engaging in the global business. And I am extrapolating from there to say that on the nuclear issue, because it has been a fairly big stumbling block, that the new parliament will revisit the issue. As an analyst, I say this, my reading is India and the United States have top class bureaucrats and officials who can find a modus vivendi. Because this is really about doing the right thing. And we must do the right thing, particularly after Fukushima. It can be done, is my point. I get a sense that it will be reviewed and that we will find some progress. So these are the areas that India is seeking tangibly in five years that Mr. Modi has. Gentlemen in the third, third row, this side. I'll send you a mail. Uh, Robbie Harris, a, a former naval person. If I may, uh, a two-part question, Commodore. Uh, the first concerns the, the other bilat. How do you see... The? Yes. First no, the first question, no, if you could. I couldn't hear it. Now, now can you hear yeah. me? Yeah. Uh, a two-part question. Uh, one concerns the other, another bilat, the relationship between India and Russia. How do you see that relationship uh, developing under Prime Minister Modi? And related to that, uh, in, in the past, there's been a bit of a cozy relationship between the folks in the Indian uh, defense acquisition community and Russians. Uh, do you anticipate that cozy relationship to continue? Should I answer this? Yeah. Or, you know, briefly, I think as far as India and Russia are concerned, with Mr. Modi, again, I do not expect any major departure. As I said, Russia has got a certain relevance in terms of India's military inventory. You're a former naval person, so you know that once you acquire platforms, whether it is ships, submarines, aircraft, you know, we have life cycles. So the Russian supply for Indian inventory is going to continue. Russia also has a very important role in the civilian nuclear domain. As far as our reactors, we have something called Kulam Kulam, etc., which is going on. No changes, but I think what Mr. Modi would perhaps do more effectively is to take forward the diversification that had begun on Prime Minister Vajpayee's watch. You know, if you look at the figures, till the Vajpayee watch, India did not have a single piece of significant US military equipment. This is up 2000. All our equipment came from the former Soviet Union, what we now call as Russian origin. And like you, I'm a naval guy, so I know what you know, kind of dependence we had. And we had two other sort of suppliers. One was West Germany. We had got the HDW submarines and France, you know, which was also providing a certain inventory. And in the last decade, Israel has become a big you know, sort of supplier for us on certain high tech. With Mr. Modi, what I expect is that under Mr. Vajpayee's watch, we started the beginning of getting FMS from the United States. And you have some black belt sitting over here. But notwithstanding the disappointment on the civilian nuclear agreement that India and the US have not signed anything tangible, from 2008 to now, which is roughly five and a half years, India has acquired a little over $10 billion from the United States in just military inventory. And most of this is the FMS route, as they call it, the government-to-government -government arrangement. And our Air Force now, 
has got fairly significant platforms and we also are now I think in the process of signing something for the army. The navy has the former USS Trenton you know which is the gator ship and there are various other initiatives in the pipeline. So my read is that we will continue the relationship with Moscow. Moscow has been as I said a very important supplier and the larger Indian political choice if you will is to be able to have the political diplomatic space to engage with both. I think what India does not want is to be put into this binary choice saying that you engage only with the US or with the others and I think we have been reasonably successful on that and if the world is going to move into the so called multipolar arrangement there is one phrase that India now has used very often in our own internal debates. India talks about strategic autonomy that has replaced non-alignment. But all the professionals know that this strategic autonomy has got limited credibility because we are the world's highest importers of military inventory. So your autonomy is really circumscribed by the kind of dependencies you have already built into the system. And my read again is that Mr. Modi is very, very aware of this. All his interviews that I have seen, he's talked about looking at the defense sector in a very focused way. And I do know I'm saying this that in our internal discussions we've said, we are trying to really evolve a systems engineering for completely rewiring India's defense production. Meaning that we have a template, you know, if you're familiar with India, can I belabor this point because there may be a little interest. We have what is called as the defense production sector unit, it's called a DPSU. We have the defense research and development, it's called the DRDO. And we have labs that come under the DRDO, we have these defense production units and the entire sort of production is controlled by the state, state units and Russia provides, you know, we have a lot of assembly issues that we do, aircraft and so on. We do not have any meaningful kind of contribution coming from private sector. We do not have any significant foreign collaboration except what we are doing with the Russians. Say for instance our nuclear submarine, the Arihant is a good example of state to state cooperation. I think the challenge and I say this more as an analyst not in terms of just Mr. Modi's choices. India's challenge is to rewire defense production and make it compatible with the 21st century, with the current global chains of manufacturing and the current levels of technology which means that you have to get into various other agreements both with state entities and non-state entities. It's not just a question about going with the existing stovepipes. I don't think it will work. And that is the challenge for Mr. Modi. Systems engineering of 1.5 trillion dollars over the next 20 years. So he needs some really good hands who can conceptualize what does it mean to have a trillion dollars and say I have 20 years and this is the product I want at the end of you know whatever time frame. So that's the you know way I would locate Russia. Commodore Bhaskar Sanjeev Joshipura, former president of the Commodity Markets Council. Uh, two questions for you. One is, in the political context, given that the BJP does not control the upper house or the Rajya Sabha, what do you expect will be the outcome of various initiatives that the Modi government might propose? The second question is more a sort of a geostrategic one. You started your talk by saying that uh, uh, you framed the 1990 dialogue in uh, sort of uh, geopolitical terms and you talked about, you know, India, Japan, China and then you ended your talk by talking about the Modi governments in Gujarat's relationship with Japan in terms of trade and investment. My question specifically pertains to what's going on in the South China Sea at this point. 
where China is sort of uh, uh, playing the big boy in the room kind of thing and uh, alarming several of the other countries in that region. Um, now, India, of course, has a strong alliance. The Modi government specifically, as you noted, has a strong alliance with Japan, would like to build and maintain a strong alliance with the U.S., but at the same time cannot afford to anger China. And so how does it dance this delicate dance between all of these various players? Thank you. <laughs> it's a very good way of framing it. How does India dance? We'll have to learn from Washington, I think. I don't know if we've sort of got it right. But uh, the BJP and the upper house, you know, my immediate response is that, yes, the numbers do not favor the NDA BJP in the upper house. But since they have this overwhelming majority in the Lok Sabha, I think you could expect a kind of a limited bun fight, meaning that the Congress and the opposition to the BJP, which has the equivalent of the numbers there, they have to be very careful about what they'll oppose, meaning they lost the election, the Congress in particular, because of the perception with the voter that they didn't care for development and growth and that they were not able to provide appropriate governance. If the Modi legislation is going to be about better, you know, you know his, by the way, Maxim, his bumper sticker is maximum governance, minimum government. I mean, that resonates in some parts of the US, I'm sure. So when he is going to introduce legislation that would be, you know, on these issues, corruption, governance, development, growth, it's very unlikely, you know, it would be political suicide, I think, for the opposition to stall those bills. But where it becomes, you know, we have some tricky issues in India. You know, for instance, there were many schemes that had been started with the Congress, particularly in the second term. You know, what we call as rural, you know, the Narega schemes, welfare schemes, etc. If those are seen to be in any way tampered with, and the opposition is able to project that, as here is a guy who's with the, you know, equivalent of the money bags, the crony capitalism, and you know, all the negatives that you attribute, he'd have to proceed cautiously. But my sense is that in the first one year, it's unlikely that there would be any major kind of issue that the opposition would be able to, except of course, if we get back to those, as I said, the very sensitive issues in India, and I use the word communal, that the minorities issue, what happens on that, etc., which I don't think is you know, something that he also would like to get into at this point. So I don't foresee anything. That's why I said limited bun fights. You know, on China, it's a very sort of, you know, you're talking to a sailor, so I could sort of give you a very detailed response about what is happening. But my read is that, Mr. and since we're talking about this in terms of the Modi government's policy, he made some very firm statements about China in the run-up to the campaign, about, you know, territorial issues and that India is not going to, you know, uh, be pushed, etc., etc. Will that become policy? And that is where I think, you know, at the moment there is no immediate sign he knows China as the chief minister of Gujarat. My recall is that he visited China thrice in the three terms that he had. And I was in Beijing last year and I was talking to some Chinese diplomats and academics and you know, our track two guys. And by and large, they all, even at the political level, they seem to have had a very favorable impression with Mr. Modi. Now, various allusions. Is he the dung of, China, of India? You know, what China's experience with Deng Xiaoping? Or as someone said here, is he the Reagan of India? So his current stock in China at a political level is high. But what happens when India and China start talking about the tough issues? I have a feeling that he's going to manage the dance, as you said. You know, for India just now, if you can see that we have not taken any particularly provocative position on the South China Sea, but we've made our point. 
for those of you who track the south china sea please see india statements going back to the shangri-la dialogues from 2010 onwards we have repeatedly said that we stand for the current international practice respect for law and you know this kind of using of unilateral actions is not welcome recommended etc i don't see any change over there but the possibility of greater consultation between india and japan between mr modi and mr abe is quite high that's my sense and i think that itself would have a certain signal but at the end of the day let me take the benefit of saying this in washington everyone's looking at this city you know meaning that when mr chuck hegel has used the kind of strong language and words you know i mean i was contrasting the west point speech with the shangri la speech you know and you found many elements here but will that actually become you know more shall we say sustained that's what frankly i mean the whole of east asia if you just look at the commentary that's come out over the last 2 3 days the blogs you know they're all asking the same question don camp here my name is sue no i'm from i'm an analyst from the department of justice from the um, from the okay um you had mentioned that from mr modi had appointed um as his national security advisor a person with an intelligence background and i was wondering if you can explain what that means for india and perhaps um for some of the intelligence activities that india may engage in you know again short response is that for india the post or the office of the national security advisor is of recent origin it was created only in 1998 by mr vajpai when he became the prime minister we did not have a national security advisor from 1947 to 1998 and a former diplomat mr brijesh mishra who was a close confidant of mr vajpai was appointed as the first nsa so that was the first appointment subsequently when the next government of dr manmohan singh came there was a political decision that we needed two persons to do the same kind of spectrum of jobs because mr vajpai had mr mishra i'm sorry i'm confusing you with so many names but the national security advisor was also what we call as the principal secretary to the prime minister so he was doing two jobs nsa and ps so when dr manmohan singh became the prime minister he appointed two officials one was a former foreign secretary who's now late mr mani dikshit he was the national security advisor and he also had another person to assist in internal security at that time which was again a former intelligence chief a gentleman called mr narayanan who is now the governor of one of our states now this arrangement worked for the first year or so but tragically we lost mr dikshit who died while in office so the manmohan singh government continued with the choice of a single individual and because mr narayanan with his intelligence background had already been appointed dr manmohan singh didn't want to change it and he used to have a few special envoys in the prime minister's office but we had a precedent of a intelligence official being appointed as india's national security advisor mr narayanan continued till the bombay attack mumbai attack of november 2008 soon after in early 2009 for political reasons and he himself i think felt the need to move on he was replaced by a diplomat again so india's national security advisor with dr manmohan singh towards the end of his tenure was shiv shankar menon who again 
diplomat, very sort of seasoned and highly regarded, a former foreign secretary. He continued as the national security advisor for about five years, from 2009 till last week. Now the choice for the prime minister, and there has been some very interesting debate in India saying that who qualifies to be national security advisor? Should it be a diplomat? Should it be an intelligence person? Should it be a civil servant? Should it be a military officer? Should it be a politician who has hands-on experience on security issues, you know, various. Uh, and of course, we had a very interesting gender issue. Does it have to be a man? You know, things like this went on in the internal debate. But Mr. Modi, given all the, I would say, you know, deliberations and who should be identified, the buzz was in the last month itself that he would prefer to have somebody who is very strong on internal security. Because Mr. Modi sees internal security as a very serious issue for, as I said, his own, shall we say, perception of India's security challenges. He's not alone, by the way. Dr. Manmohan Singh in November 2005 stunned everybody in India by saying India's most serious security challenge is internal security. So that seems to be the assessment by which Mr. Modi has identified a intelligence person. But again, over the last two, three days, I've been reading some commentary that he also wants to supplement because the standard questions, will Ajit Doval meet Susan Rice, you know, yeah. whoever be the equivalent, is he, would that be the best kind of arrangement? Alternatively, if you have, you know, whatever be the other, would he lead the Indian delegation for the China talks, you know, whatever the mm -hmm. earlier NSAs have been doing, have all been gamed, if you know what I mean, in the Indian context. And the last I heard, I've been here for five days, so I just saw this on the web that now Mr. Modi seems to be toying with the idea of having a foreign policy yeah. advisor. Yeah. So much so that even the current Indian ambassador's name was mentioned. I don't know how yeah. true that is. And I don't know. It's, I, I mean, I don't think it's accurate myself. But anyway, but this is the current, shall we say, thinking in Delhi. And we might see some more, you know, I would say appointments in June. Uh, yeah, I'm Rajesh Kedi, and I've done some writing on South Asia. Uh, Uday, Gujarat has, I think, the largest Shia minority in India. And most of these Shia still maintain fairly good economic and cultural ties with Iran. And to have access to Afghanistan without Pakistan coming in the way, the only option is Iran. So, and especially if the current talks between the United States and the Iranians break down. What impact do you think uh, Indo-Iranian ties, how are Indo-Iranian ties going to be impacted by both the breakdown of, say, the U.S. talks and by the presence of Modi as the Prime Minister? Could you pass it to Mr. Gamble? No. Yes. Yeah. Rajesh, is a typical googly from you. It starts in a very sort of, you know, slow way. But again, as a researcher, I would request one of the younger interns to check this out. I mean, I'm curious now that you mentioned it. I don't think Gujarat has the highest Shia numbers. I don't know about percentages. Oh, I see. Because by the numbers, I think UP would still, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but two points here. I think, you know, the operative part is that Iran has, I think, a great relevance for India. Not just Afghanistan, but for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And since your question is more about U should U.S.-Iran relations not move in a positive direction and there's a breakdown and Iran goes back to, you know, an earlier kind of category as far as the U.S. is concerned, I think it will pose a challenge for India. 
meaning depending on how the United States you know again interprets the sanctions and the various sort of strictures that have been passed because you know that we went through a very complex kind of discussion on Iranian crude for India and India was able to I think talk to the United States and you know we have some very complex technical reasons as you are aware some of our refineries are almost you know designed only for Iranian crude etc etc and I think the US you know understood that particular point and they created some space for this to continue. So the worst case scenario will pose a challenge let me put it that way that if there is a complete breakdown of US Iran and the United States goes back to imposing very severe strictures and sanctions about trade with Iran and brings hydrocarbons into the thing not only India I think even other Asian uh, importers of Iranian crude whether it is a Japan or a South Korea or the others Indonesia would all I think have a certain problem and I will defer to other energy experts here to give another view if they will but I see a political challenge here with Mr. Modi I think you know I do not think the fact that Iran is I mean since you introduced the Muslim uh, identity question would be of any consequence you know I think currently India is trying to find a certain track for the payments with Iran as you know Chabahar has already been identified there is a very clear professional awareness that we need to have that access through Iranian ports to be able to access Afghanistan and I think Iran has also been making some overtures over the last six months that I am aware of to increase India's investment you know as far as the Chabahar is concerned you know they want us to step up the activity. I expect that it will be you know sort of again taken forward on the big issue which is the US led initiative with Iran which the IAEA is trying to progress now. If it goes in the positive direction I think possibilities open up if it does not and Afghanistan becomes the critical issue for all players United States, India, Iran, China, Russia then I think the possibility of another you know political strategic consultation is uh, fairly high probability wise. Mr. Camp. Uh, th thank you uh, Donald Camp currently with uh, CSIS. Um, first of all thanks very much for a very comprehensive and fascinating commentary over the last hour this has been great. Um, I am an optimist um, <laughs> on your continuum. Um, and even in the bad old days when uh, we were, our governments were barely talking, it, it was always my sense that the, the private sector, the people to people relationship, the trade relationship would carry us through and move us on. Um, one of the things that salvaged the relationship after 1998 I think was the strobe talbot Jaswant Singh dialogue. That set the stage for a lot of what happened afterward. And among the things we've done since then is to establish a lot of government to government dialogues. I, someone counted 29 the other day, counterterrorism dialogue, mm -hmm. uh, security dialogues, defense dialogues, trade dialogues. Despite that, we seem to have a lot of misunderstandings between our governments and they crop up all the time and we get over them and things move on. But I, my question is twofold, do you agree with me <laughs> and, and if so, why and what can we do about it to sort of improve that government to government relationship at all levels and, and avoid misunderstandings in the future? You know Don I think that is a very good sort of question and I am glad you raised it you know you are a man who has enormous experience with the bilateral with your days in state. And I am glad you also mentioned the Talbert Jaswan Singh talks because you know I am sorry that I did not mention it but I just want to repeat this or reiterate this 
that in terms of the people who did the heavy lifting and provided what I would call as a certain path, the Strope Talbert just one thing talks were very, very important. But despite that particular personal rapport between the two of them, I want to make a broad point and here I am really putting my head on the block. I have been a student of the bilateral for many years and what often struck me and I have even raised it with senior Indian politicians is that Indian politics going back to Mr. Narasimha Rao's time, we are talking about the early 90s, mid 90s till recently, rarely did you see an Indian politician stand up in a stump speech or in parliament and make an emphatic statement that this is a very important relationship for us. Meaning that it seemed to have a certain political shall we say cost and I do not want to go into names but I did raise this very often when we were doing the India US civilian nuclear agreement. For me as an Indian analyst and somebody on the other side studying this I used to often say that we need a politician to stand up and do not leave it to the prime minister to actually convince the people you know that this is a good deal and we are getting A, B you know say the kind of things that I am trying to offer an interpretation. But it was absent you know if you correct me if I am wrong but rarely in Indian parliament if you see the speeches and we have some young interns who are looking at speeches or for that matter in public statements do you find this political kind of assertion and I think it has been one of the reasons and this played out into the misunderstandings that you talk about. And I found this most I would say palpable in defense and I say this because I am more familiar with that particular sector and very often I am saying this in the public domain as an analyst there seemed to be a dissonance in India even at the height of the India US you know shall we say political and bilateral engagement where the our ministry of external affairs you know seemed to be ahead of the curve and major ministries particularly like defense were often not on board you know or even if they seem to be on board it did not translate into and I think part of the frustration or the dismay on both sides was that there was no comfort level at the political level you know and I raised this many times internally. If you read the June 2005 Pranab Mukherjee Rumsfeld agreement and what followed later no Indian politician forget defense ministers even others wanted to stand up and say that hey listen we have something here we want to take it forward. So it was always done by stealth which I keep saying is not desirable in a democracy you know it is a there are two issues here one a matter of principle that you cannot handle national security issues by stealth and secondly it is technology related. In this day and age I do not think governments can fudge you know and not for too long even if they do or try to keep things you know quote unquote under wraps and so on it does not work. So I think this is a problem area but my sense is that in the last couple of years this is something that has been I think understood realized. I expect I could be wrong that the Modi government will I think pay more attention to what you might call as strategic communication you know with the United States and even at the political level I do not think we have a template for it. But I expect that there would be more clarity and assertions like Mr. Modi himself has done in his run up to the election where he said that these bilaterals are important because they give us growth, they give us development etc, etc. I expect to see more of that and now we have a new you know I think last count 315 out of 543 parliamentarians are new they are first termers and what do they bring it is a different kind of I would say profile that is coming into the Indian uh, political context. So, I just echo what um, Commodore Bhaskar said 
to some extent we have a historical baggage and the baggage is still there. It started off in the early decades. Uh, so, I mean, so whether we call, I mean, I just use non-alignment strategic autonomy. To a large extent, while non-alignment was non-alignment between both blocks, it ended up being a little more non-aligned vis-a-vis US than vis-a-vis Soviet Union. Similarly, strategic autonomy to a large extent, Dr. Bhaskar, if you agree with me, has often ended up being that India must be independent, especially of the United States. So there is a baggage there which is continued. It will change. Um, things have changed the last decade or two. But things move slowly then when that baggage is still there. So uh, and I think that plays into a large extent. India's policies, uh, very often, uh, politicians do not want to take a stand because there is this belief that you don't want to stand up and say that, you know, we should be with the United States or we should do this. It doesn't get you that domestic political constituency, doesn't get you those votes. Even if it makes sense strategically, um, it still doesn't get you uh, the votes or the support, which it should, but it doesn't. You know, this is a very interesting discussion for analysts. Let me just push this and take this forward a little bit. Parna says that in the Cold War, while India was really not aligned, it was more closely oriented or leaning towards Moscow than Washington is a f- statement of fact. But for me, as a student of geopolitics and strategy, I would just make the case that all the capitals involved, Washington, Moscow, New Delhi and Beijing, took a certain call. And if the Nixon-Kissinger rapprochement allowed the United States to take a certain decision about the Cold War and China became you know, the preferred kind of interlocutor. It, at that time, it made geopolitical sense. So, I, I think you know, this was something which was again conditioned or tempered by the context of the time, the geostrategic environment. My question as an analyst and which is why I refer to the 1990 Afghanistan-China and came to the current moment, we are sitting in a think tank. I asked this question of all my US friends, analysts, academics, interns, saying that you took a decision. Now, we haven't spoken about Pakistan, but that has been a big point of divergence and dissonance in the India-US bilateral relationship, meaning that the United States had a certain view about how they wanted to deal with Pakistan. Delhi felt that it was adversarial, and we went on with this, etc., etc. My point is, what have we learned from that? Meaning. The United States needs to do its own introspection. It's not for people outside to do this, but internally, in your think tanks, in your policy circles, in wherever, to say that what we did over the last 20 years in terms of not just South, our Southern Asia policy, was it a very expensive choice? Meaning that what did we pay in treasure and blood? As an outsider, I would make the case that it was a very heavy price. And Sergeant, whatever, is just one example of various other things. So, my point as an analyst sitting here today in Hudson and Washington is to say that we need to think these through. That, you know, when I spoke about the deja vu, I am saying that the challenges, at least in the strategic and security domain, you know, are something that we need to be more clear about. And the big choice, when I talk about why is it that the United States should ponder over this, the US had a choice in 89 after Tiananmen. It decided it will engage with China, bring it out and make it a more economically viable market or whatever. But today, China has reached where it has with a fair amount of what I would call as traction provided by the United States. Now, could the US have taken a different call at that time and said that along with China, we will also enable India because they have the numbers. I don't know if it came up in policy circles, but our discussions were very short term at that time. You know, Mumbai 
attack Babri Masjid, Hindu Muslim, you know, I've, I've sat in on meetings, I'm sure as Don has, where our agenda was so, so tactical, I can't tell you. But this is what I'm saying, that this is the challenge, you know, for the community. Puneet. Puneet, good to have you back in Washington. Puneet Alawalia from New World Strategies. I've been affiliated with the BJP as a second generation and now an American citizen for the last 24 years. What is the takeaway from Washington after our conversation here for how do we move forward Building on Don's question, how do we move forward? Because Washington is very fast-paced. Our attention span is short and deals in few weeks and few months. And whereas India deals and works in a different way and Modi government will have a challenge. Uh, one is to get past the past history and persona and the image they have, but also a pro-business attitude which he has displayed in, in Gujarat. What would be very key item should we lead with political dialogue? As Don said, one more dialogue after another should be trade, or it should be an engagement from the carry, uh, from the Obama administration. How do we move forward this thing? Who's going to blink first? Is it India or the United States? And with the past history in the last few months, which you know what we are dealing with, it's a clean slate. But what do we take away? That how do we build this relationship with a very key strategic ally in the other part of the Asia, which we need to have? So could you elaborate on that? How do we lead? Puneet, you know, as I said, I'm just trying to see, given your own experience with both Washington, D.C. as a person who is in the lobbyist kind of area and your deep knowledge of India and its politics of the BJP, I'm reminded of that old Bob Hope line, you know, which says that when your country wants you, it calls you connect. <laughs> and because you are a committed patriot, you take the call. So I keep saying, I've spent 20 years of my life, if not more, just studying the bilateral. Some of you know this. I think the India-US bilateral needs some committed stakeholders. You know, within the bureaucracies, within the policy makers, within the political establishment, and people like you, you know, those who are contributing to the discourse and to the decision making. And not for any short-term returns. You know, my, I, I mean, some of you know this. I was a member of a task force that our prime minister had set up, you know, in the mid-2000 period. It was about reviewing global strategic developments. Now, for a variety of reasons, it still remained in the restricted domain. But as an analyst, you know, my constant advocacy is to say that India and the United States need to engage with each other because it's in their respective interests. That's the short point. You know, there will be differences. I just spoke about Pakistan. Somebody mentioned Iran. These will continue. Notwithstanding that, my point, I used to often say this to my American friends, is that the rise of India, you know, the emergence of India, and you find some reference to this in the Bush years, in itself is of relevance and in the larger American interest because it shapes the grid. You know, the rise of India in a certain manner punctuates the strategic grid both in Asia and at the global level. That, to my mind, is in America's interest. In the same fashion, for India, and we have gone through these debates internally. The United States is a democracy. Values matter. It doesn't matter. Your internal debates are your business. You're American citizens. You can debate endlessly about whether the president did this right or did that wrong. But at the end of the day, there is your constitution. There are your values and principles. And therefore, for us, as a normative choice, you know, shorn of all identities, forget the tag United States, Statue of Liberty, you know, etc., WASP, white American, no. Forget China, you know, East Asian, whatever, you know, just 
if you talk about what is in the larger Indian interest, it is an entity that has enshrined its values and its principles and is you know abide, abiding by them. And our alternative is the authoritarian regime, which has, as I said, I'm not talking about China in particular. I'm just saying that if there is an entity that has got this particular authoritarian orientation, is that in the Indian interest? Or the new ideology that is causing us problems, which I would only describe as being non-state, but very tenacious, and which has a host of characteristics, including gender inequity. Do we want that? So these are the questions that I keep saying that we have to ask for the long haul. Within that, I believe that there are low-hanging fruit, that there are issues where both sides can get a sense of tangible returns. We've identified, as I said, despite all the frustration, etc., etc., in a very limited defense sector, I've given you a figure of 10 or 11 billion dollars. It happened in the most unenabling environment. What if you make the environment enabling? You know, can we step up? And it's in our interest, as I said, we need technology, big time. We need investments. So where will it come from? It's not coming from Russia. It's not coming from China, much less from the European Union. So where do we knock? So that's the takeaway as I see it. Uh, we have five minutes left. So the last two, three questions. And Hi. then gentleman on the left. Okay. Hi, this is Zenobia Pantheki. Uh, my question is more related to the disability of both of us being democracies, the US and India. Because we go through cycles of elections and midterm elections where our politicians go to the hustings. And you hear these very populist slogans that are bandied about very loudly and which seem to upset the op opposing side. So for instance, when America goes to the elections and Obama says uh, he's going to bring jobs back to America or he's going to impose a higher H-1B uh, visa fee, which affects Indian companies, it kind of disillusions people on the other side of the border. And similar, uh, so I wonder how Modi is going to square the circle on this one by saying he's going to you know, open the doors to trade, uh, ensure that India has a more credible policy, that it doesn't backtrack on commitments made. So how do you square the circle on this? I think politicians on both sides will have to wrap their heads around this one to get it to work for both sides. The other question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is there a reason to, to feel optimistic that Mr. Modi will be able to control the bureaucracy? You know, I think that's the easier question to answer. My uh, response is a definitive yes, an emphatic yes. I am an optimist on that, <laughs> that Mr. Modi, I think, would be able to bring a certain sense of purpose to the bureaucracy because that was his USP in Gujarat. And a lot of people ask this question, how did he manage in Gujarat? And if you study Gujarat's so-called development model, he was able to, I think, keep you know a certain group of quote-unquote bureaucrats who were able to deliver. He trusted them, he gave them certain directions and there is one analogy often used that he is like a CEO of a firm, you know, and that he has identified these key bureaucrats and he's a great PowerPoint man and he would hand out the tasks and ask for updates, etc., etc., which is very, very different from the kind of politics that India has had in terms of how chief ministers, the only other chief minister that I can remember in recent history who had a similar style of operating was Mr. Chandrababu Naidu, yeah. the former chief minister of the composite Andhra. Now he is going to be the chief minister of the divided Andhra. He was someone who brought this kind of a style, but as I said, he, that, that was some time ago. 
So my reading is that if you look at the current choices and the kind of ripple that's gone through the bureaucracy, everyone is, you know, there's an, if you see in Delhi now, in the last week, he got sworn in on the 26th. And in two, three days, you know, this is the buzz in South Block. And if you really want to pick up Delhi's buzz, sit in the India International Center in the evening when the bar is open and you get all the kind of, you know, snippets and inputs that all the secretaries to the government of India were waiting to be called and present their respective ministries and what they had to say. Ministers wanted to know, new ministers, what is happening. So this sense that here is somebody who is now taking charge, which was the big, you know, shall we say, gap in the last couple of years of the UPA, because it was very, I think, visible to any student of Indian politics that the cabinet was operating, you know, in different directions. You know, we had a cabinet going back to Ms. Pandit Nehru and Mrs. Indira Gandhi, those who remember Indian politics, where the Prime Minister was the Prime Minister. You know, nobody spoke out of turn, nobody bucked the Prime Minister, etc., etc., especially in public. But in the last couple of years, we saw a complete, I would say, fragmentation of that protocol and that, you know, I would say even principle. And frankly, 24-7 TV has not made it any easier. I mean, every day we are now have a proliferation of television channels in 46 languages, you know, and every state is now doing politics through, actually that's a very interesting area for study. Indian politics are now being mediated by the media, particularly the audiovisual media. And that's the new thing that's happened, you know, for this election. So as a result, I think the UPA too in its last years presented this image of nobody being on the bridge. You know, that there was nobody in charge, etc., etc. And I think Mr. Modi, to my mind, has conveyed that, you know, he is going to be hands-on. But give him 100 days. You know, India has three banana peels a day in terms of, you know, what happens on issues. You know, we already hit one very odd spot when somebody asked a junior minister about Kashmir and Article 370. That's a very sensitive issue in India. And it seemed as if the government, which is two days old, had already been taken into a different direction. But he's been able to pull back. But the short response to the bureaucracy is, I think he's going to be more, I think, effective. And he's also got this great support from the people. So that's the other big change. I mean, he's got that support. You know, they want roads, they want governance. And if India has a major governance issue, the people are with him now. So that's the big deal. But I missed Zenobia's question. You're right. I mean, I think the politicians on both sides have to resist the temptation of playing the short-term card. You know, whatever it is, whether it's the visa or any other issue, it's very easy, you know, like you can get good, say, popular support for a meeting if you denounce America. U.S. policy in Pakistan, U.S. policy in Afghanistan, completely against India, etc., etc., etc. You know, it makes good politics. You'll get PRP ratings and you might get a half an hour of, you know, whatever. But it doesn't help the long-term relationship. And like fashion for the United States, I'm sure that you can talk about India's, you know, Iran policy, India's visa policy and jobs are going to Bangalore and get that limited whatever return. But it doesn't, I think, help in terms of sustaining the objectives that we spoke about. I, I'm, my sense is that I think the politicians know, but each time they have to resist the temptation. So I think we have to go back to Greek mythology and, you know, give them some way of not steering towards the island, but yet being able to hear the strains of the siren or whatever it's called, that, that particular Greek mythology, which I think is the compulsion. So. On that note, um, I'd like to thank Commodore Bhaskar thank and all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.